I think what is important is to be able to reflect back, even if you've done it for 10 years or 20 years or 50 years, be able to really say what I did was meaningful. Thanks for tuning in to episode one of season one, We Blue Dot, a conservation podcast. Enjoy listening. Everybody, and thank you for tuning in to We Blue Dot. Today we're joined by Dr. Vikash Tataya, Conservation Director of the Mauritian Wildlife Foundation, where he has worked for the past 24 years. He has a PhD in seabird biology and a variety of qualifications and experience, including a BSc in agriculture. I first met Vikash while working with Durrell Wildlife Conservation Trust in his beautiful homeland and I'm delighted to have him on the show. Vikash, thank you so much for joining us and welcome to the show. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you to, to you and to We Blue Dot. <laughs> thank you. And so you're joining us from Mauritius, obviously. Um, lucky you. How is everything over there and how has life been for you over the past year? Over the past year has been quite uh, difficult. Sorry to start, to start it this way because uh, we've had uh, COVID like the rest of the world. Yeah. But on top of that, we had also had a, an oil spill called mm-hmm. the Wakashu oil spill, mm-hmm. which has been uh, quite, quite a disaster for us. And uh, so dealing with both of these over the past year has been quite challenging from an organizational point of view. But, you know, we've, we've kept uh, abreast, we've kept afloat, and we've uh, kept our direction uh, despite all the odds. No, definitely. It sounds like it. But we'll come back to those in a, in a wee while. Um, I'll ask about them. But first of all, can you start by telling listeners a little bit about your background and how you got into conservation in the first place? Well, I was born in, in Mauritius myself. And uh, so I spent most of my life in Mauritius. For those of you who do not know Mauritius, we're a tropical island, a beautiful it's a paradise in the Indian Ocean teaming wildlife. And uh, my background it had, wasn't conservation to start with. It was agriculture. It was during the course of my BSc project that I met uh, somebody who is world famous called Dr. Carl Jones, mm-hmm. or Professor Carl Jones, as I, I should say. Mm-hmm. And uh, I wouldn't say it was a coincidence. I think it was meant to have happened. And I met Carl. And uh, you know, a few years later, I joined the Mauritian Wildlife Foundation. And 24 years, here I am. <laughs> uh, I, just, I just let life push my boat to where it is right now. And I've been in this job for a long time. And I've, within the organization, which is the Mauritian Wildlife Foundation, it is the largest conservation NGO on Mauritius. I am currently the conservation director. Uh, and I look after a number of bird, plant, reptile, island restoration projects. And I dabble in other things as well. Mm-hmm. All sorts of things. And just going back to Carl or Uncle Carl, as some people call him, he's worked with Durrell Wildlife Conservation Trust, hasn't he, with in Mauritius for quite a long time. So he's he was definitely a good person to meet then. Uh, definitely. I mean, it's, it's quite it's interesting that you call him Uncle Carl because <laughs> that started by with me. So I, <laughs> I, I have this habit of calling people uncle or, or auntie. So, <laughs> so it's, it's interesting that you picked it up. But uh, Carl, uh, indeed, Carl arrived here in Mauritius in 1979 when things were really bleak, uh, especially for birds, especially for the Mauritius kestrel, the echoparakeet, the pink pigeons, which have now been saved from extinction. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was uh, meant to have come out for just a couple of months to close down the project. Uh, he did two things. He didn't close down the project and he didn't return after three months. Uh, <laughs> So as and and many years later, they uh, he and with others founded the Mauritian Wildlife Foundation. So 1984, so 27 years, if I'm no 37 years, mm-hmm. uh, and we're still going. Can you tell the listeners a little bit about Mauritius itself? It's about its location and its landscape because it's very unique, isn't it, on the on the planet? Yes. So uh, we are the Mauritius is part of uh, three islands called uh, the Mascarene Islands, which also groups uh, Réunion Island, which is a French territory, and uh, Rodrigues, which is a dependency of Mauritius, part of the Republic of Mauritius. And uh, the three islands are about a thousand kilometers east of Madagascar. 
we were never connected to any single landmass. So we, we, we emerged from volcanic activity in the middle of the Indian Ocean. Uh, and uh, when that happened uh, over 10 million years ago, uh, there were a number of birds and animals that colonized uh, the, the various islands. Over time, they would become species of their own, uh, speciating to become uh, unique uh, in the world. There were lots of ecological processes in Mauritius that took place. And as on many islands, you had gigantism. So this is one of the many things that you get on Mauritius, such as giant tortoises, giant parrots, uh, giant skinks. Unfortunately, a lot of these have, have passed away. Uh, and uh, you also had what became, has become world famous is the, uh, the dodo. Famous yeah. because it went extinct. But we'd like to think about it famous for something else because it was the first time that mankind realized that it had caused an extinction, which is where the saying of as dead as the dodo comes from. So yeah. with, with, the death, with the demise of the dodo emerged the conservation consciousness as well. So we would like to, we would like to say that the, that the birthplace of conservation was here on Mauritius uh, with the dodo having gone extinct. Um, but there have been many other extinctions, unfortunately. Uh, yet we still have uh, over 270 endemic plants on Mauritius. So a very high level of plant endemism. So these are plants which are truly unique to Mauritius. We also have high, high endemisms on uh, Rodrigues for the plants. And for the reptiles, we also have very high endemism, uh, leading to over 90% endemism when you take the tortoises, the reptiles. And we also have bats. We also have very large bats mm -hmm. that have colonized the islands and uh, are wonderful to look at. Uh, but uh, another challenge that we have amongst the many challenges is a different kind of challenge with the Mauritius fruit. That is, people hate them because they are eating their lychees and mangoes. So there's yeah, a human-wildlife conflict here. But uh, unique because, again, the mascarines were isolated and uh, many forms diverge here. And uh, when you look at our species and our flora and the fauna, I mean, there are a, no there are a long number of things which makes them mm -hmm. truly unique. For example, in plants, you have uh, colored nectar, which is produced by some of our plants and which is uh, not common in nature. It's actually very rare. Yeah. And most of the plants in the world which have been recorded to produce colored nectar come from Mauritius. So, mm -hmm. so it's one of those peculiarities, if you wish, and, can, and I could go on and on about, you know, we have a, a boa, which is uh, found now only on Round Island, which is uh, an ancient lineage of boa, which is possibly the, the, there's a missing link with this ancestor. And so it's, it's a relict boa that's, uh, that's now found only on Mauritius. Uh, it's, an, it's in a family of its own. So that's, just, you know, I could go on and on about the different things which makes Mauritius uh, truly, truly unique, but beautiful as well, volcanic of volcanic origin. But the islands around Mauritius are both volcanic. You have sandbar islands, but you also have coralline islands uh, as a result of the geological history of, of Mauritius. Um, mm -hmm. So truly, uh, you've, you've been able, you've had the chance of coming to Mauritius and Others who come here find very beautiful landscapes, but also uh, very interesting species. But also in terms of conservation, I mean, we have conservation success stories. We've had, we have had lots of species of animals that have gone extinct, but we have lots of species which have also been saved. And that yeah. puts Mauritius on the conservation map in the world. Yeah, we'll come back to them in a wee minute, yeah. Humans didn't come to Mauritius until, was it the 17th century or something like that? So is that why the dodo didn't have any kind of fear of people per se, because, because they hadn't seen them yeah, before? That, that is also another feature that, that uh, is common in, in many of those isolated islands that ha where animals have never seen predators, mammalian mm -hmm. predators. So yes, they, they do not have this innate fear or avoidance of predators which unfortunately made them uh, easy targets for the likes of monkeys and uh, mongooses and pigs and rats, especially, and cats uh, when, when they were brought here to, to uh, Mauritius well, and to the Mascarines. We were some of the lands which were the latest colonized. 
So our mm -hmm. colonization history is goes just over 400 years, which is fairly late considering that many of the other islands were colonized a few hundred years before that, and in some cases, a few thousand years before that. Yeah, that's why, as you say, it's such a kind of unique story in conservation as well, because it was pristine up until up until humans came and not only brought people, but as you say, brought all sorts of um, invasive species that wouldn't naturally live there. So you can understand why all the different species that live in Mauritius have had problems over the last 400 years. So you therefore have a very important job, I guess, as the conservation director at the Mauritian Wildlife Foundation. Can you tell us a little bit about what your job actually involves? Um, you know, as you say, this year it's been maybe particularly challenging for all sorts of reasons, but on a day-to-day -day basis, what kind of things do you do in your role? Well, it, it's, it is certainly a very challenging job. Basically, we have a number of conservation programs. We, the, the, the ones which have become most renowned are, are the bird conservation works, uh, pink pigeon, echo parakeet, Mauritius kestrel, but we also work on the Mauritius Fodi, the olive white eye, the Mauritius coco shrike. So these are the, the suite of, of bird projects. We also work with seabirds, especially on the remote islands of Mauritius. Besides that, we have uh, a challenge that over 90% of the endemic plants of Mauritius are threatened with extinction. Mm. Putting in place conservation for these programs is some of the thing is is one of the focus of the Mauritian Wildlife Foundation. So my, my work is basically, I don't do it alone. Uh, there, there are teams of people, there are uh, managers, there are coordinators, there are botanists, there are field biologists, volunteers, there are expatriates, Mauritians, a large team of people out there in the field who do uh, fantastic work uh, despite the the, the hardships that uh, field work um, uh, you know, comes with. So my work is trying to keep all our conservation programs together, but also um, strongly policy also, you know, what is the policy, what is the conservation policy that the foundation is going to uh, adopt uh, is also part of, my, part of my job. But these days you inevitably have to do fundraising, PR as part of your job. Mm -hmm. it, it also, my job is also, also entails maintaining links with organizations. We have many different partners. Uh, the most prominent ones are Dura Wildlife Conservation Trust, Chester Zoo. Um, we also work with Zoological Society of London, good number of universities, mainly British universities, but also universities from South Africa, from Reunion and elsewhere, and also maintaining links with the government of Mauritius. Mm. We recently become members of Botanical Gardens Conservation International, and these organizations bring, uh, bring in uh, standards that we aim to attain or maintain uh, in the foundation, but also making sure that we are up to scratch with the inter latest international guidelines, inter latest international policies and practices that uh, have a national bearing, but also an international bearing, because the projects that we do are not to save for the Mauritian Wildlife Foundation. The, 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 the species that we're trying to save are for the whole world. Yeah. Um, yeah, you mentioned earlier on the plants, obviously. I mean, people tend to, in my experience, if when they think about conservation, they maybe think about animals. They don't think about the plants and why they're so important. I mean, they make up the whole ecosystem. They're the things that really keep all these different species alive. So it's great to hear that you're doing loads of work with botanical organizations and things like that as well. And you also mentioned the national parks. I mean, can you explain to listeners a little bit about, like Mauritius is quite a small island, obviously, in the bigger picture. And you have, how many national parks are there on Mauritius? So we have two national parks. The first and the largest national park is the Black River Gorges National Park which is very, very important in terms of conservation for Mauritius, but also for Africa. It's renowned as one of the most important for conservation in Africa uh, by, by virtue of the amount, number of species of plants and animals that are found in, those, in, the, in this national park. So this is the Black River Gorges National Park. Uh, more recently, there has been a, park, a national park declared in the northeast of the island called Braddo National Park. 
the highlight okay. of which is the uh, is the ma uh, mascarine paradise flycatcher. There's a population of mm. that in this remote, uh, isolated location in the northeast. But we have around Mauritius 49 islets. And not mm -hmm. all of these are islets that are important for conservation because some of those are now hotels. But mm -hmm. within the suite of islands that we have, you have about a dozen which have got uh, very important species. Round Island is the most important of them all. Per kilometer square, it's got more threatened species than anywhere else in the world. We have Serpent Island, which is, I would say, an almost pristine seabird island, teeming with hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of seabirds and uh, reptiles that are on the ground reptiles and a large tarantula that you okay. also get unique to that island, so only known from that island. Wow. Uh, but you also have a number of other islands, um, and we work on those, all of these islands. And the one where we have had a lot of input, besides Round Island, is Ilo Zegret, which uh, is an, a nature reserve. So it's declared a nature reserve, and we have a lease uh, with the government of Mauritius. It's the only one of its kind. Um, and uh, uh, we have actually done a lot of habitat restoration. And as you would know yourself, it's one of the few places we can bring the public and we bring school children and we can show them the, talk to them about the, the work that we do. It's become our, the showcase for our work. So these are the national parks. These are the, the nature reserves uh, that we work on. And, and, and also one of the things is that we started off by being uh, a, a species conservation organization. But we are now firmly an ecosystems restoration organization. We do not pretend that we are going to be able to bring back the dodo, mm -hmm. uh, but for what is left, we are trying to save as much of, of what is left and trying to piece it together. And something very exciting that we are doing also and, uh, is to put back surrogates or analogs. So these are animals uh, which uh, have gone extinct and for which we try to plug uh, a, a similar alternative. And we've been doing this with tortoises. Mm -hmm. So in, in UK and in Europe and in North America, you'd have called it uh, rewilding. Mm -hmm. You probably do it with the species which are still uh, alive, still, uh, still uh, extant, whether it, these are bears or wolves, yeah. species as was present before. Uh, we do not have the luxury of bringing back the large tortoises which were endemic to Mauritius and instead we are using an exotic tortoise which is from Seychelles but related a distant cousin to our endemic tortoises and it's worked a treat on uh, Ilozigret, it's worked a treat on Round Island and it's worked uh, we are also applying it in Rodrigues and we would like to expand this work it's been documented as being a very successful analog species reintroduction yeah. And it works with plants. It really supports plants and uh, restores ecosystems. Well, I've seen it firsthand. I mean, my personal favourite from the whole of Mauritius are the giant tortoises and, and some of the reptile species. Um, so I've seen it on the legs of Eel's Egret, what a difference they make. And I mean, I mean, can you explain to people what a difference, I say, a giant tortoise makes to the environment it's living in? I mean, how does it do that? Yes, uh, certainly. You can think of tortoises as being what we often call them as ecological engineers. So these, these tortoises, we're talking of animals that weigh 200 kilos or more. And these are also animals that can live 150 or more years. So imagine a landscape where you have very high densities of these tortoises, so much so that a, a, a very an avid naturalist and traveler had uh, described that you could walk you could uh, uh, walk hundred paces without even touching the ground just by walking on the backs of tortoises. So mm -hmm. you get an, an idea of what densities uh, those areas had of tortoises. The tortoises did a number of things. Uh, first of all, they helped to keep uh, a low grass herb community, a swathe, a lawn, as we sometimes we call it, a tortoise lawn. Mm -hmm. And so they helped maintain a, a, a plant dynamics uh, where they were present, especially in high numbers. They were also, uh, they also trampled plants. So there were a number of plants which uh, 
which, div, uh, which adapted to tortoises by becoming prostrate, by having uh, tough stems, by being bouncy, mm -hmm. for example. So they, they actually co-evolved with the, with the tortoises. They also dispersed, uh, they, they ate quite a number of fruits. Uh, the plants also co-evolved with the tortoises so they could be eaten. The fruits could be eaten, so they were large, fleshy fruits, mm -hmm. sometimes scented. And they would pass through the gut of the tortoise and the next day they would be pulled, you know, several hundred meters from where they were, they were eaten. So the tortoises were playing a very important role in terms of dispersal of, of uh, fruits. Mm -hmm. And we've, uh, through studies, we found that the fruits which, were di which are dispersed do better than the fruits that fall under the mother plant. Oh, wow. Showing that uh, they are adapted for seed dispersal, for fruit dispersal. Yeah. And, and the, the tortoises did that, did that job of, uh, of you know, dispersing uh, fruits uh, across the landscape. And since the, uh, since the tortoises went extinct in the 1840s, because the reason they went extinct were numerous. First of all, uh, they, there were predators that had been brought in, the rats, the cats, the monkeys, the dogs, and the pigs uh, that would eat the young and the, and the eggs. Um, but there was also habitat destruction and modification. But worst of them all probably is the fact that people were eat, found them very nice to eat. And yeah. They were being eaten in large numbers and they were ki being killed. The fat from the tortoises were extracted so that they could light lamps on ships. So, you know, some very atrocious things that happened to tortoises until the point, to the point that all the tortoises of the muscarines, five species, they all went extinct. Mm-hmm. I remember seeing um, illustrations or early kind of paintings and, and drawings of sailing ships and, and sailors that were passing by or coming to Mauritius and they were, you know, they were storing, stacking the tortoises up, I guess, on the deck because, as yeah. you say, they were used as a, as a food source. But I guess they were an, an easy prey, um, easy to catch because obviously they're so slow moving. And when you I imagine when you were sailing back in those days, it took many, many weeks and months to, to get to places like Mauritius. So... But they're such amazing animals, as you say, they live for so long. Yes. It's interesting to, usually I would think of birds as, you know, seed dispersers, but tortoises, I learned that obviously, and they regret they, they are very important too. Absolutely, birds uh, and reptiles also, well, of course, tortoises are reptiles as well, but mm -hmm. uh, the, the tortoises actually had a profound impact on, on the, on the uh, ecosystems and I was about to say that since they are they went extinct, there has been nothing that's re, that's actually uh, replaced or taken over the, this function, uh, which means that um, many plants which were co which coevolved with uh, with tortoises, also with dodos. Dodos may also have been doing some of the seed dispersal, and we also mm. had uh, we also had uh, geese on Mauritius. Many oh, different right. types of geese and, and teals that would also have done some, some of this, especially the, the, the geese. So there was nothing that actually continued this seed dispersal and uh, engineering, the ecological engineering, maintain this engineering process. Because you, re you realize with so many tortoises walking over the landscape, they were like bulldozers uh, yeah. going all over the place all, all the time. So many uh, invasive, al invasive alien species introduced plants were able to establish in the absence of things to uh, uh, to gnaw them down. Yeah. Um, so it's it's uh, so the landscape turned to being quite introduced species uh, rich, uh, mm -hmm. whereas formerly there were endemic plants which were present there. So our work is is to actually bring back tortoises to these places. Uh, we have nearly seven hundred tortoises on Round Island, and we are currently working to get to a thousand uh, tortoises on the island. And the tortoises have actually transformed some parts of Round Island. And uh, we are trying to get them to, to restore this herb community, this grass community, which is threatened, which is highly threatened mm -hmm. uh, as, a, as an ecosystem type on Round Island itself. I would like to do this uh, on other islands around Mauritius as well. Yeah, well, I was just thinking that the smaller islands, I mean, Round Island, which I've had the 
privilege of being on um, is not dissimilar in size to some of the Scottish islands, you know, that I've grown up nearby. And so it's quite a small island, but it's if you can restore these islands to the way they were, as you say, 400 years ago, and that's a example of how how conservation can succeed and can work. And then you can put it out in the bigger picture of, you know, Mauritius or or other parts of the world. But Round Island in particular, it was um, decimated, really, wasn't it? Am I right in saying there were um, loads of goats on the island and all sorts of invasive plants and species? Was that maybe in the 70s? And now it's got to a point that it's doing really well by the sounds of things. Yes, like many islands in the world, unfortunately, sailors had this nasty habit of leaving animals on these islands, uh, stowaways. Mm-hmm. So in, in many, uh, on many islands around the world, they would leave things like goats, sheep, horses, rabbits, hare, pigs, etc., etc., uh, just in case that if, if ever they, they, was, they were stranded on the island, they'd have something to eat. Yeah. And on Round Island, they put uh, in the 1800s, goats and rabbits were left there. Hmm. And uh, the goats and rabbits did very well on the island, but it was at the expense of the vegetation and at the expense of the soil. So the island literally left, lost all of its uh, topsoil. Probably well, it would have been a meter or several meters of, of soil, which has literally hmm. gone down to the sea. Um, with, with that went the plants. Uh, which became very rare, and we had many plants which went extinct. We know that in the early 1800s, there was a hardwood forest, which uh, was literally gone by the 1970s. We've lost one uh, endemic, well, the tortoises went extinct in the 1840s, two species of tortoises. We also lost the round island burring boa, Mm. uh, which is a unique boa. There There are two different species of boa. One which survived and the other which went extinct in 1975. Uh, the only boa to have gone extinct in modern times. Mm. So we started uh, working there, uh, you know, in, in earnest in the uh, 1980s. Um, by 19, well, by 1979, the goats had been eradicated. Mm-hmm. But uh, one of our first tasks as an organization was to help uh, get rid of the rabbits. So that was uh, successful by 1986. And uh, the plants, you know, they jumped back with a vengeance. But uh, unfortunately, as we learned, is that uh, invasive plants, weeds, which had been brought in from around the world, which had uh, reached the island, Mm -hmm. which up to that point had been kept at bay by uh, rabbits, yeah. All of a sudden, started uh, popping up from from everywhere, and in, in with a vengeance too. Oh, yeah. So much of our work since then and up to today on Round Island is actually to try to compete with and to try to get rid of of weeds to make sure they don't uh, become more aggressive than they are. Um, tortoises have helped in that in that uh, manner as well by keeping down those introduced species. But not enough. I mean, our, our staff who go on the island, who work there, it's a beautiful place, but it's, it also can be a harsh place, as you know yourself from Scottish Islands. Yeah. Beautiful, but it can be very harsh as well. <laughs> and they, they, they do a wonderful job of, of trying to restore the habitat. Um, but also we work on seabirds. Uh, so we have, uh, like you have on, on these Scottish islands of yours, we have uh, seabirds that come and nest uh, in... Uh, in large numbers now on this island. Something else which we had on Round Island, unfortunately, was poaching. Mm. So poaching of seabirds. I must say, thankfully, just by virtue of our presence on these islands, uh, poaching has been uh, eliminated. Yeah. Just the fact that there are people, there are scientists that live on the island, are just eliminated poaching. Yeah. And the seabird numbers have come back, you know, with a vengeance as well, and uh, doing very well. An important point is, as, as we both know, but the listeners might not, is nobody goes on Round Island, do they, apart from researchers and scientists and Mauritian wildlife staff and people like myself who were, who were volunteering at the time. Um, so it's quite strict. Um, and we make sure, we, I remember making sure that we didn't have any stray seeds on our clothing or anything. You have to be so particular when you're going on to a, an island like that, that you don't bring anything with you, um, which you might not think about, but... But it's essential. So it's uh, it's called biosecurity, and uh, you know, as, as you yeah. as you you've described yourself, making sure that when you go, 
with your belongings, with your clothes, you're not introducing seeds of any unwanted plant that could become a big problem for us in a few years' time and which could severely modify the, the ecosystem. For mm -hmm. example, uh, I'll give you a very simple example. There, there are grasses which have unfortunately reached the island, which are fire-prone grasses. Mm -hmm. So increasing the risk of a, of a fire on, mm. on the island just by the, by the fact that these uh, grasses could uh, become common on the island. So we have for the past 25, 30 years been uh, making sure that this, uh, these grasses don't become more common. I mean, this is just one example. But yeah. um, Round Island managed, I would say, miraculously to, to maintain quite a lot of the reptiles and the seabirds uh, and, and insects for one fact, which is uh, rats, never, rats never got there. Yeah. Miraculously. Wow. So we do, uh, the quarantine is very important. The biosecurity is very important to make sure that we do not inadvertently bring on uh, rats or mice or shrews that could uh, be disastrous to, to, to the ecology of the island. So we do take a lot of precautions to make sure that we are not bringing any unwanted uh, plants or animals but as much as you can do is never enough no it's never enough because the, 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 the zero risk does not exist yeah but you I mean you've done amazing work in the example of Round Island and, and, and you know those are great I mean it, it's as you say it's going to be constant and you've got to continuously work on it but it's still I mean as you said people might be listening thinking why is that round island so important for example but as you said there's a species of snake there the round island boa that is found nowhere else on earth so you know that just that in itself and i know there are endemic plants there and also oh, there's skinks and all sorts of different things so it's really important to to look after it you mentioned seabirds there. I mean, one of the risks, I guess, of allowing the likes of rats onto an island like Round Island would be, I imagine, that they would eat the seabirds' eggs and, and destroy the kind of numbers. You, you did your PhD on seabirds. Was it in Mauritius? Yes, in, indeed. Uh, I was introduced to the seabirds of Round Island by uh, my friend and mentor and my, my boss, Carl Jones, uh, who himself had been ringing birds we we probably call it hustling birds mm -hmm. for for two decades before before I, I joined he uh, aroused my interest in the seabird called the round island petrel um, this was and it still is uh, an enigma although we've kind of uncovered a, a lot of the story about the round island petrel which is fascinating uh, it, it turns out that this petrel uh, isn't uh, one species but hides three, possibly four species that are hybridizing. Okay. Uh, so, which is why it was quite an enigma for, for several decades. Mm. Um, and we, we, together with what we did on the morphology and the breeding, and what uh, another colleague uh, of mine did on the uh, genetics, we were able to put a piece out that, you know, we were not looking at a bird, but we were looking at three birds hybridizing and possibly a fourth species. But, you know, whilst I worked on the Round Island Petrel, which is world unique, I mean, it's, it's, it's the only known three-way hybrid uh, of any vertebrates on Earth. There may be others, I'm not saying there are none others, but uncovered, there are not yet uh, any that's known. And especially not when you, when you say there's a possibility that there's a fourth species that's, uh, that's implied in that, in that uh, petrel. Yeah. But uh, we also worked on... Uh, Tropic birds, shearwaters, so many other other mm -hmm. seabirds as well, and um, there are many many other birds that come and breed in small numbers, uh, or are visitors, and uh, they are rarities because they 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 are flying here ten thousands of kilometers to come to Round Island, and uh, so we do get some very rare birds that also seabirds that turn up on on the island. Some of which uh, not uh, have been confirmed breeding, uh, confirmed suspected breeding for a long time, but confirmed breeding uh, or reconfirmed breeding only just last year, for example, or last two years. So we we do uncover some gems in terms of seabirds that come to the island. So globally, very important for seabirds. 
Well, that's why, as you say, that's why it's so important to keep doing all this research because it is such a unique place um, with so many unique species. We've talked about in the past, you know, Scotland's not quite got the same tropical climate, but we've got um, a lot of islands in particular, um, the likes of Bass Rock off the east coast of Scotland that is uh, a huge tourist attraction in regards to, to wild seabirds. So there are some similarities, as you say, but yours are a wee bit more tropical. <laughs> But I was going to say, if we bring it back to thinking about the islands, I mean, Ilo Zigret is another island off the southeast coast of Mauritius that, I mean, it's more, it's flat, isn't it? It's more, it's a coralline island. And it's the one that you already mentioned. I don't know if you are right now because of COVID, but in normal circumstances, you have ecotourism, you have school groups, you have groups of people that can come on the island and visit and actually learn about the species and I've obviously worked there I saw the benefit of it and I worked with school groups and children so I know I know how important it is to the bigger picture of Mauritius but I mean in the last year as you say you mentioned the the oil spill so it was just quite near to Ilo Zigret wasn't absolutely. it? Absolutely I mean uh, the the island is as I mentioned earlier on is a showcase to our work before I get on to, to, to answering your question one of the important things is that we've become conscious that you cannot do conservation without letting people know and discover what the work and become enthused by the work that you're doing and become a part of the equation. Uh, So for many years, uh, unfortunately, uh, there were reasons, of course, uh, why we had to do the the urgent species conservation work. And we said we we will take care about education later on. And that later on did come up in the 1990s where we started conservation education. And Ilozigret was the first place where we started this, uh, this education. We also started a, a very important conservation education work around, which is, it started off on the Rodrigues fruit bat in Rodrigues, but then it spun off in, into many other directions. But Ilozigret is, is our showcase. We can talk about Round Island. It's wonderful, but... We, you can't bring school children to Round Island because of it. No, definitely and not. And so on. Um, <laughs> but, uh, Zigret, yes. I mean, Elizigret is uh, just 800 meters off the coast of Mauritius. It's five minutes by, by one, our boat. And on this island, we bring uh, thousands of visitors every year. Ecotourism is important because it, it brings in very important uh, revenues for the organization, as well as as making the work known to the Mauritian public, but also to tourists, because we get a lot of mm-hmm. tourist visitors who come. Last year, we were struck by a, a shipwreck to start with of a, a boat of a ship called the Wakashu, which wrecked uh, less than two kilometers south of Ilozigret. Mm-hmm. Two weeks later, we had an oil spill. For those of you, if you can picture Ilozigret, it's a coralline island, as you mentioned, lush green vegetation, which we've been restoring on the island. It sits in a lagoon, which has got the most exquisite hues of turquoise and green and blues. And, you know, it sells, just seeing the picture, you know, it's selling a postcards. And yeah, it's paradise. It's paradise. Yeah. And then it's got lots of rare birds, which we've been bringing onto the island and reptiles. So this shipwreck happened too close to, the, to our islands and when the oil spill occurred on the uh, 6th of August, if my memory is correct, we had a thousand tons of oil that leaked into the ocean and was literally within an hour, probably, if not less, they were, that oil was on our shores. Around yeah. us, you know, you, you just couldn't believe that something like this was happening. You know, it's, it's something you didn't... Uh, you wouldn't dream in your wildest dream, uh, wildest you know nightmares that uh, you'd have something like this close to shores. Of course, we know there's there are oil spills uh, that happens. Mm-hmm. We see we see that happening all over the world, but we never really mm-hmm. thought it would be a, it would happen to us. I mean, it's like some of those things which you never think happens to you, but it, it did happen, uh, yeah. and that was quite a nightmare. Um, and we have had had to rescue very rare plants. Uh, we've had to rescue some of the birds some of our reptiles, a number of other islands were also affected by the oil spill. And we've had to uh, evacuate reptiles, uh, which are now in safe custody at uh, the Jersey Zoo. Uh, Mm. And in the event 
that those reptiles would go extinct from these other Southeast islands. We know that we've got a safety population that's at Jersey Zoo that we can bring back uh, to Mauritius yeah. to repopulate the islands. So it's been a lot of very, very hard work. And I think what, what it brought home was that to me in particular, I was amongst those who were the front lines uh, of that oil spill. And I can tell you what it brought home is that there's nowhere on this face of the earth which is safe from a shipwreck and an oil spill. Think about it. It can happen anywhere on earth. It could yeah. happen in the North Sea, as it does. It could happen in the Bering yeah. Sea. It could happen in Alaska. It could happen in, you know, you name it. Because the, the, most of our oceans are getting very, very busy. And despite mm -hmm. technology, despite uh, maps, uh, modern maps and GPSs, etc., We've known, you know, for Mauritius itself, that there are so many of these ships that are just going like astray all the time. We were lucky in many respects because that was 1,000 tons of oil that leaked. It could have been 300,000 wow. tons of oil if it had been a large tanker. And, uh, you know, uh, the, those, those, those ships are getting larger and larger these days. And, uh, and I think it's, it also reminds us how fragile our conservation successes are. And, and yeah. that, that, is, uh, uh, that is something that you live with all the time, that, you know, anytime you can have an oil spill, anytime you can have uh, a rat that comes onto an island and can set back years, if not decades of work. And uh, we just need to be on our toes all the time. And that's why it's so important, as you said, to have the team of people that you have working with you who are who are constantly working hard to make sure these, you know, there's not a rat or there's not a invasive species coming onto the island. But I remember when I saw the news of the oil spill, I remember thinking it's obviously it's awful wherever it happens. But I, when I saw how close it was in the photos to Elizabeth, I just thought of all the places, you know, um, and how how is it now? I mean, it's been a few months since the oil spill. Are, are things getting a bit more back to normal? Or? Well, uh, thankfully, you you don't you can't you can't see the oil anymore. The one okay. thing which we are still trying to study is how far this oil has actually infiltrated the system. So we're working mm. with labs that are taking samples of the the the, the sea water. We're also looking at how far the oil pollutants, which is a toxic pollutant in the environment, how that is yeah. uh, staying on and what is the, the impact on the reptiles. Uh, one of the things that we fear and have been demonstrated in some of the oil, other oil spills is that you won't uh, immediately see uh, birds falling off the branches. But what happens over the course of a few years is the insects which start disappearing. And as insects and invertebrates are starting to disappear, it just pervades through the whole food chain. Of course. And it's only like probably four, five, six years that you start seeing what is the actual impact of the shipwreck. The ship may have been uh, tugged away or, or scuttled, and uh, the cleanup of the visible oil has been cleaned up, and the, the natural use have come back but the pollutants are still there in the environment and have actually poisoned the, the, uh, the ecosystems. And you can only detect the effects a few years down the line. It's been documented in some other, in some other oil spills. And it's mm. also the time that the insurers have already gone home. Uh, they've done their, their, their work very quickly before you get any, any massive uh, ecological problems. They're already out of, out of the place. Living conservation is to deal with the impact of the oil spill long term, uh, and the yeah. impact can be long term. So we are we are uh, we are monitoring the system. We are having to restore the systems more than we were before, because the better the best resilience of the ecosystem of Ilozigret against an oil spill. Previously, it was against invasive alien species. It was against climate change. Now we add to that equation oil spill. Uh, yeah. to restore as best as possible the ecosystem. The uh, vegetation on the coastline may have been more affected than the interior of the island. And so we'll be monitoring that as well. We had to cut back a large number of native plants that were literally oiled, black with oil. 
So we've had to trim them. And, uh, you know, this is all new to us. I mean, we've never dealt with an oil spill. Yeah. And the, so it was a very, very sharp learning curve. Uh, some of uh, the, the petroleum experts out there said, leave the plants. Yes, they may die. They may die back. Uh, but leave them because nature will do its job. You know, we, we actually did that for some of the plants, but for some of the plants, we trimmed them back as well. So we're now looking mm -hmm. at how far, how well they're going to restore themselves. And we've actually mm -hmm. uh, had to work with companies that were doing the cleanup, cleanup as in power cleaners to, uh, to clean the, the coral. When you get oil that infiltrates porous coral, it's difficult to get it out of porous coral. Of course, yeah. And it stays there for, for years and years and years, and some of it will, may probably not go for not go away for decades. Uh, we have mm -hmm. uh, one uh, one cricket called Ilozigret cricket, which is a tiny cricket which uh, which is coastal, which uh, we could see previously, and which we haven't seen since the oil spill. The stronghold no. of this endemic uh, cricket is Ilozigret. It does occur in, uh, in other places on Mauritius, but the stronghold was Ilozigret. Uh, so we are praying that it's not gone extinct or not got seriously impacted. As I was saying to you, the, the impact of an oil spill is very often on invertebrates, more than the mm. large birds or large reptiles, at least not immediately. Mm. When one sees images of oil spills, you see the kind of seabirds and the and the marine creatures that are affected, which is obviously terrible. But as you're saying, it's really important to take into consideration all the other species that will be impacted, you know, years down the line. And it's good to hear that you're already, you know, communicating with people about that and obviously hopefully you'll be able to monitor it and it hopefully won't be um hopefully the species will recover and you'll be able it will never happen again hopefully if it ever does happen again you'll be able to kind of react very quickly now because you've had to experience it once yes i mean the, the other thing which which i also wanted to mention is that uh we've been ever since the uh the oil spill or even before the, the oil spill happened we were trying to push the government to have a stricter oversight on where those ships are coming a lot of the ships that actually shipwrecked on Mauritius for the past 10 years had nothing to do with Mauritius. They were not even meant to stop by. Oh, okay. So they were right. meant to be many kilometers offshore, and yet they were coming back. And we know from the Wakasho now that they were coming, coming close to get internet. Oh, wow. Oh, my goodness. I didn't know that. Is that what it was? So they were coming close to get internet uh, so they could uh, get, get, get internet, be able to phone home or whatever. Yeah. And we've been trying to say that we need to put in place policies and apply laws and designate our shipping lanes so that this doesn't happen. And so we have also another rule is that NGOs are very often watchdogs and they actually help drive or maintain on the agenda things which are not just about saving birds and reptiles. And indirectly you're doing that uh, is also to try to influence policies. So one of the yeah. rules that we've been having, uh, we are participating in the, in the integrated environmental monitoring plan. We've contributed to it and also contributed with it uh, through the CFAS, which is a British organization which, the government, which has been helping the government of Mauritius and to, to put in place a monitoring plan. They've done some very, very good work here on Mauritius. Uh, CFAS, CEFAS, which is under your Ministry of Agroindustry, I believe. Uh, agriculture okay. and um, we we also um, are trying to say that we need to have those standards in place to prevent the next shipwreck and to prevent the next oil spill sadly to say there's been a shipwreck uh, a few weeks ago thankfully oh, no. not an oil spill but a shipwreck and it just reminds us that you know the, we will get more shipwrecks in Mauritius and we are pushing for a greater scrutiny of, of uh, what ships are doing in our waters there are more than 2,000 ships that pass by Mauritius. Uh, most of these ships are not even coming to Mauritius. The great majority will, don't have to stop here, but they're coming close to our shores. So basically, yeah. uh, you know, why are they just a kilometer or two kilometers from our shores when they should be at least 12 nautical miles, uh, mm. at least, if not more? So we, we are trying to try to uh, put pressure gentle pressure 
so that Mauritius signed some of the conventions that would actually get more compensation in the case of, uh, of an oil spill. So we do work at this, this other level as well, which is poli at this policy level, national policy level, and being members of international organization, we also uh, try to bring, uh, invite Mauritius to adopt international policies as well. Mm -hmm. Now, it sounds like you've definitely had your work cut out for you in the last year with COVID as well. I mean, you also have camps on the mainland obviously dotted around in national parks in different areas has that been impacted by coronavirus sadly so just as so you realize is that we went through our first covid phase last year which was a year ago and we are now having our second covid phase okay and in between we had months of no covid cases on mauritius yeah so we were uh, probably be we became uh, far too complacent mm. unfortunately a month ago it uh, it just uh, covid just reminded us that you know it's around it's still here and uh, so our work has been affected this time our work has been probably more seriously affected than the first time for the simple fact that international travel has got difficult most of our staffing of our expatriate staff have come from Britain, yeah. but we also get, you know, Canadians, uh, Australians, and, uh, and re more recently we're getting a wave of Sri Lankans, you know, we've had Singaporeans, we've had so Malagasis and so on and so forth. First of all, our national airline went bust, as many other international airlines around the world, so getting to Mauritius is not that easy. Secondly, it's become more expensive to travel to Mauritius. Thirdly, you have to and go through this expensive quarantine of uh, 14 days on Mauritius. Mm. So all of that has got made, made it very difficult for uh, international staff to come to Mauritius to work for us. We've had just a couple that have actually been able to come to Mauritius uh, compared to typically over that same period of time, you may have had 40, 50 yeah. other people who, who would have come over that period of time and uh, internationally. The other problem is uh, restrictions in movements. Parts of Mauritius have become locked down. Yeah. So the central part of Mauritius, which is where quite a chunk of our population lives, is literally locked down in the center of the island. And they're not allowed to move out or into the red zone. We have to rely even more on those staff that live outside the red zone and are able to attend to work. Yeah. So it's, it's, uh, it's been quite str strenuous. Uh, and funding has become strenuous as well. Mm. Just the fact that I mentioned Ido Zigret, we've gone from having several thousands visitors uh, every year to almost nil, yeah. uh, almost uh, no visitors. I mean, there are literally no international visitors coming to visit us. And uh, schools now have to prioritize on achieving their syllabus and on not going on outing. So basically, that's affected us. Yeah. Uh, the sense that we are not getting the number of schools visiting, uh, but it's it's also meant that we've also had to adopt other ways of working. So quite a few of us are doing are working from home. It only works to a certain extent. I mean, when you are running field programs where you have to be monitoring birds, feeding birds on the ground, and looking at the nests and so on, or ringing birds, you can't do all of these uh, by working from home. No. It has affected our monitoring of our different programs in the field. But our president's report is going to come out literally in the next day or so. When I read it and I see that despite having had the COVID, the oil spill, the financial downturn, which is the other catastrophe that we are, we are going through, of course, many conservation organizations. But despite that, I'm, I'm very pleased by what we've been able to achieve or maintain mm -hmm. uh, in the past year. And it just goes to show how committed and how determined the staff are. And that brings re resilience to the organization. And also having the direction, you know, it's uh, how, how the organization, I'm, I'm only one person in the whole organization and yeah. we, we are hundred other people in the organization, but how as uh, all as one team, we've been able to sail, sail this, I think it's, it's, it's just uh, such, so rewarding and so encouraging for all of our staff uh, who've been through this time times. Most of staff have had to work harder mm -hmm. uh, than, they, than, than previously. Yeah. What advice would you give to someone who's trying to work in conservation today? It's a job that needs a lot of passion, a lot of commitment, 
and a lot of sacrifices. So I'm not trying to scare anybody out there. <laughs> uh, but I think, I think it's, it's something which I say to anyone who's coming is I don't try to sugarcoat what it is. Mm. Uh, you know, you, there will be times when it's going to, you'll be wet uh, down, down to the bones. Yeah. You, there'll be mosquitoes around you and biting you and that you're doing long hours of field work, returning after dark. However, what I say is, if you're passionate about what you do, it brings a lot of happiness. Mm. It brings a lot of happiness, a lot of satisfaction, because despite all the doom and gloom that you hear about you, you are able to fledge a young, and that this, uh, this bird was able to fledge because you were able to protect its habitat or protect it from predators is in immensely satisfying mm. and rewarding. So uh, I say that if you would like to join conservation, it takes more sacrifices than other jobs. Mm -hmm. So I think these are the things which I tend to say, and that unfortunately, conservation is not getting any easier. With industrialization, with development, with climate change, with invasive alien species, the work is getting tougher and tougher. Mm -hmm. Uh, more challenging. If, if you are looking for a career which is full of challenges and keeps you on your toes, conservation is where you should, where you should be joining. Not some boring old job in, <laughs> in a bank or, or, or somewhere else where you know, it's run of the mill every day. Yeah. Talk to a lot of conservationists, those who are going through successes and failures, because there are failures in conservation as well. Things don't always work out the way that you want them to, to work out. What I very often say to people is, if, when somebody says, I want to do it my, my life career, I say, do it for a few months, do it for a few weeks, mm -hmm. and then you decide. Yeah, see what it's actually like. See what it's actually like. And you'll be surprised that a lot actually uh, leave after a few weeks. Yeah. I've met a lot of people who like the idea of working with animals and working in conservation, but I think the reality I've, I've experienced is you, you don't work with the animals necessarily. You're, you're looking after, as you say, the ecosystem as a whole. It's a lot of very physical work in the rain and the mud. Um, you have to be willing to be outdoors in all weathers. But as you say, the one or two things that do happen in a day that are really worthwhile make, make it all, I think. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I think what is important is to be able to reflect back, even if you've done it for 10 years or 20 years or 50 years to be able to reflect back and be able to really say what I did was meaningful. Uh, mm -hmm. You only have one lifetime. And, uh, you know, to be able to step back after so many years and say it was worth it, despite all the hardships, financial, personal, physical also. Mm -hmm. Conservation takes you to places you're working in some of the nicest, most cool places you can find on earth. I mean, if you're on those islands in the Scottish islands, or if you're on Round Island, I cannot describe the magic of being in places like that. You're just imagining that you're working in these environments and that you're actually helping to save those environments for future generations. You know, just makes it so much more rewarding uh, despite all the challenges. But yes. you know, not everybody, uh, we very often tend, as you've rightly said yourself, we very often tend to idealize Mm -hmm. the job and you know it has got its positive and its negatives it comes with its challenges and you just need to know what you're in for you know be ready for long hours of work if work is challenging and if your work is interesting it's a hobby mm -hmm. yeah it's not like work yeah so you know get up every morning enthused you know what am i going to do for, for today so it's not work it's passion it's it's, it's a hobby it's it's fun yeah, no, that's good advice, good advice. Now, we have nearly run out of time, but um, I just wanted to ask, how can listeners learn more about the Mauritian Wildlife Foundation and how can they support um, your work? These days, uh, thankfully, organisations make themselves known through the, uh, through the social media. Mm -hmm. we, uh, we are on Facebook, we are on Twitter, we are on Instagram. So please follow us. Mm -hmm. uh, we've got our website as well where we put a lot of information about our different programs. Uh, so yes, please get to know us by every single way that, uh, that is possible out there. And uh, how can you help? There are many different ways. If you are a bachelor in sciences, any sciences, and uh, you want to come and experience conservation firsthand, and that's world-class 
conservation, apply to, to become a volunteer for us. Some people have been with us for six months and some have been with us for a decade and now and some have made it their, their homes here. Uh, the other thing is, if you can support our work financially, we are always, as an NGO, we are always in, in need of, of funding. But uh, it, it's all, you can also not contribute financially, but make our work known to others. Yeah. If ever you are in Mauritius, come and see us. We have uh, Ilo Zigret, we have Grand Montagne in Rodrigues. Come and visit us and see firsthand the work that we are doing. We can't take the visitor to every single part of our, of our project but you'll get a good gist of, of what we're doing. Yeah. Um, and I think those are different ways to help us. Or even if you found a very nice story, retweet it to your friends. Yeah. You don't realize, you know, a tweet doesn't cost you uh, any, anything, but you know you're spreading the message around and that, that of course, is important. For yeah. Just share um, information and, and donate on the website. I think you can click and donate on the website or if anyone's planning any crowdfunders this year then yeah. think of the Mauritian Wildlife Foundation that would be fantastic thank you Vikash as I say we have unfortunately run out of time I'm sure we could uh, keep talking for hours and hours but thank you so much for coming on We Blue Dot today and thank you for giving us your time pleasure that was my my pleasure to have spoken to you Cathy uh, we've we've known each other for many years pleasure to have been able to to participate uh, to your to your blog and thank you for inviting us mm-hmm.